One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Thanks very much, first of all, for listening into today's show. We hope you've enjoyed the first two days of the Christmas period. Uh, well, well, I certainly have. Christmas officially began, or if I see the blanks there, it officially began, we said this on Tuesday, with the second captains at the Irish Times Sports Book of the Year review. Yeah, and I'm, I am feeling very, very festive, you know. Ken did put a bit of a downer on it by suggesting that the trouble of dismantling or disposing of his Christmas tree was too much... That, that was too much hassle for him, so he's just not going to bother this year. That's not really the sort of cheer we're looking for. So if Ken could maybe up his game in that respect, I'd really appreciate it. I've had a number of people in touch to ask if we can publish the complete list of books. Uh, really, you should put put in those hard yards by actually listening to the programme. But if you're hmm. too lazy to do that, or if you couldn't be arsed taking down or remembering the books, well, we've we've put in a contingency plan there. We have actually got them on to secondcaptains.tumblr.com. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with Twitter. We're spoiling them. On. I'm T- telling you, they're just going to get comfortable. T-U-M- they're going to put the effort in. T-U-M-B-L-R. There are a lot of sports books there. Just at a glance, just ju- just to double check that it was actually on there before. Oh my. Sports yeah, books coming we, out of our ears. There. We did basically mention everything. Uh, Every that book that's been written. Yeah. Um, and then of course we still got loads of tweets saying, I can't believe you left out. You do always get that. Yeah. But hey, listen, you know, it's it's an imperfect art. You alright, Ken? Yeah, I'm good. No, it's just we haven't heard from you yet. I was just listening. Yeah. Just listening to the TV there, chatting away. Mm. Gabbing away about sports. Like Sean Kelly, Ken. That's that's a book we didn't mention, but Sean Kelly said that he learned a lot by listening to people. Don't know if Ken's learned an awful lot, but he's listening. Now, that would be my, uh, that would also be my approach. I mean, I would consider myself to be, uh, that would be my sort of preferred mode of masculinity. Strong, silent. Strong, silent type. Yeah, you know, a sort of um, deep-chested, uh, craggy, mm. slightly mysterious, and slightly sad kind of masculinity. <laughs> that's what I. That's what I seek to project. Like a like a, a stare of a Russian novel, or maybe Yeats's. Was it Yeats, the wild the man of the fisherman? Yeah, his grey, his grey kind of marrow clothes. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of sounds like. I would get bored out there though. Out in Connemara, or because Russia. I've been, I've been to Connemara, and it's, it's a place of staggering beauty. You know? Oh, absolutely! It's difficult to say whether it is more beautiful than Kerry. Mm. I must say that when I was in the down in the ring of Kerry, I kind of felt like I was in, you know, I'd actually gone back to prehistory. And I don't mean, I don't mean that as a jibe at the people or the culture. What I mean is the majestic. Uh, Beauty of the, the scenery, beauty of it all, which which surrounded me. Honestly, I felt like, uh, wow! This is, I honestly would not be surprised to turn to stumble over this and to find there were dinosaurs living here. That's well, just what it looks like. Listen, Ring of Kerry is downtown Manhattan compared to <laughs> Northwest Mayo, which is if listen, if that's your bag, if mm. prehistory is your bag, yeah. Northwest Mayo, Belmullet up there. Can't listen. Go for it. Right. That's all I'm saying. My but tip, I, my 2014 tip to you. I would I would find myself though a little bit um, a little bit perturbed by by actually being away from other people, you yeah. know, because I while I am while I do seek to project that strong, silent, mm. manly uh, sort of persona, actually I crave the company of other people 
You're a personable old bean. I feel... Always said that I feel lost. Again. I feel lost without them. And if I was out there by myself, I can imagine myself drinking a lot of alcohol. But I know, I, I take your point, Ken. I was up, uh, I was over in Sarajevo, as you know, recently, yeah. on a holiday. And as part of one of the tours we were doing, obviously a lot of it, is, a lot of that, those kind of tours in that part of the world are focused on, on the war. But this uh, gentleman brought us up to... You know, Sarajevo hosted the Winter Olympics in 1984. Yeah. And they had... Yeah, they had... Uh, this amazing bobsled track. Well, it was, I don't know if it was amazing. I haven't seen any other ones up close, but it, it looked pretty spectacular. It's still up there. It's now disused, but in better weather, you can actually walk down the bobsled track down through these woods mm. and get picked up again a little bit further down. But it was so... Literally, the only three people... Uh, there were only three of us there, really. Dead silence for... for, for Everywhere around, I think this is so relaxing. It's amazing. It's just so nice to be in such a such a quiet spot up here in the mountains by this bobsled track. And then after about thirty seconds, I thought, I'd love to go down and get a coffee somewhere. Yeah, um, your poetry, poor. your poetry'd really improved up. <laughs> yeah, if you if you spend a bit wa- more time wa- up there, wa- walking poetry, down that that disused bobsled track. Yeah, your poetry'd like get a hundred percent better. I'd poetry think. is one of those things that seem to really go into decline after this mass spread of television, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, people just couldn't be bothered. No. MTV. You know, killed poetry. Is that what we're saying? No, we've gone too far. We've overstretched. Let's get back to sport. The Irish provinces head into the weekend's return fixtures in the Heineken Cup on the back of a double clean sweep. Two weeks in a row now, we've beaten the best that Europe has had to offer. Is this proof that our teams are the best, Murph? Or have the English clubs just given up on a dying tournament? Hmm. That's the question we'll ask Jeff Probe and Trevor Hogan and Shane Horgan very shortly. Uh, Well, yeah, I don't know about that now. I would, you know, I mean, Munster have been playing, we've been playing French teams as well. I mean, the, f- the fact of the matter is, we've beaten the best that Europe, Europe has to offer. The question now is, should we throw in our lot with the Super 14, with the <laughs> Super Rugby in the Southern Hemisphere? Because I feel that we're just not, we're just not getting competitive, enough competitive games. I mean, it's going to kill the yeah, sport really in are. Ireland if we, if our provinces don't start getting We've been more carrying these games. English clubs on our back for too long. We've been enjoying the mild December weather here in Ireland, the East Coast of America last weekend at the deal with some heavy duty blizzards. But short of a nuclear attack, the NFL show just goes on. Mm. They do not call off a game. Nuclear attack, it depends how close it is to the stadium. Yeah. They might still consider... Didn't that happen in a Tom Clancy book? Did it? Some of all fears. Did, did it? Well, did, yeah. Did the game so. go on? Was it the Some of all fears? I remember the cover of it, sort of bright orange colour. Um, of course, they cancelled that game in uh, The Dark Knight Rises as well. Uh, that game didn't go on. I feel sure of that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there was, there, the, the ground did. But in real life... It hasn't they happened. would play on, yeah. If there was, no, no. I, 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 well, I would. Maybe they'd play it in the car park. I'm not entirely sure, but yeah, extraordinary uh, scenes in the Detroit Lions, Philadelphia. Quite a few Eagles people game. who don't usually watch NFL, I think, ended up just maybe reading about this on Twitter or seeing it somewhere and uh, popping on for half an hour and seeing eight inches of snow underneath the the cleats, Murph, of the Eagles and Lions players in Philadelphia. It's a pretty remarkable sight. Yeah, it was. It really was ridiculous that the that the game was going on, but it. What was really uh, struck me was it took about maybe two quarters, the guts of two quarters for the teams to adapt. But then once they did, it was actually amazing. The, 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 the alacrity, the physical alacrity of the players uh, throughout the third and fourth quarters. Amazing. What's the name of the, the running back for the... LaShawn McCoy. LaShawn McCoy. Early on, one of the commentators said, oh, LaShawn McCoy, this guy, he's going to struggle in this weather. He just won't be able to play his normal game. Yeah. Forget about him. Uh, three hours later, LaShawn McCoy has scored two touchdowns, run for some sort of record amount of 250 yards. yards. 250 yards. Just, and also running as though there was no snow or yeah. anything on it. It was just like he was on air, Murph. I mean, it, it was pretty, pretty spectacular. It was spectacular. We're going to talk about a little bit about that, but that brings us to the Ice Bowl in 1967, a very famous game played between for the NFL Championship at the time for the Packer, by the Packers against the Cowboys in Green Bay in temperatures of minus 15 degrees. We've been watching some highlights of this earlier on today. It's absolutely spectacular. So Brian Murphy, I'm sure, will be great on all of that. Right now, Shane Horgan and Trevor Hogan are ready to go. Trevor, thanks very much for coming into us. No problem. Two clean sweeps in a row for the provinces. Is that achievement as good as it sounds? Can we take it at face value? I think we have to, because if you look at the, the, the stage that it's, it's happened... It's still in the in the middle of of the group stages where everything is is up for grabs and everything is in the mix. I don't think it'd be fair. It'd be, it would be a little bit of an, uh, an insult, maybe, to the English sides if you're suggesting that they're not as interested, because a lot of the teams are still in the running, and it, it's not it's not even the last second or, or even last round of the of the of the group stages. So you know, there's there's a lot to play for. I, I think you have to give credit to the Irish teams and. 
you know, especially I, I think Leinster and Connacht for the way they performed. I wouldn't, that's, yeah, I think it is unfair to argue and even it kind of calls into question their professionalism that they're not, not as interested. But subliminally is there, or subconsciously is there something there? I was watching the Roy Keane, Patrick Vieira documentary the other night and Roy Keane was talking again about Alex Ferguson taking on uh, Magnus and, uh, and uh, sorry, McManus and Magnier and saying, of course, it had a destabilizing effect on the club. People notice these things. So when the things this big are going on, swirling around a competition and around clubs, kind of even subconsciously have some effect on how the clubs perform in the competition. Maybe, and that's a great point from Keane. Keane I mean, he also said as well when, when he got a compliment from Ferguson for you know basically doing his job, running around the grass, covering every blade of glass, he, grass, he, he took that as an offence. Yeah, that was a bit and, much, uh, I thought. A bit much, but it, you know, you could argue that it's the English players and the French players and all the players, once they play in a match, that they, it's their job and it's their... It's their uh, it basically it's their essence that they have to perform, and if they're if they're not performing, it's it's the ultimate insult, regardless of what was going on in the background. Shane, what do you think? Um, I think Trev makes a good point there. I think it's less a, a situation where they're being destabilized by what's going on in the background, but that the English teams just uh, aren't quite as good as they have been. Um, the competition actually doesn't look the standard of the competition, aside from actually uh, uh, some of the Irish teams, doesn't look as strong as it uh, has been in past years. If you look at, you know, you look at the English teams aside from Gloucester and to some degree, Sar- uh, sorry, if you look at uh, Harlequins and to some degree Saracens, um, I think that the teams have gone backwards. Why is very that, Shane? If not the political issue, then why, is, why have they gone backwards this year? Well, I think it's a, it's an ongoing issue with their league. It's the way it's structured, the way the, that the um, the the fact that there's um, relegation. I think is a big thing. They don't they play a different type of game. They try and almost compete with the French league in the way they play, um, as in they have very big packs. And Northampton are you know that that's what they base themselves on. They're a team that grinds down teams. Uh, Saracens try and do the same. Now I don't think that they have the mass, and I don't think they have the players to do it against a big, big French teams and uh, I think when it comes to the Irish teams they play a different type of rugby and it's a, it's a higher skill level especially with Leinster and, and you saw Northampton was showing up as a result of that at the weekend. Jeff Proben, Grand Slam winner with England joins us. Jeff, what do you think? Is there a sense that just the structures of the competition in England is, uh, is making it difficult for them to compete now? Is there an element that what's going on around the Heineken Cup is destabilising? What do you think? I think it's uh, all to do with all of it really when you, when you look at it across the board the, I think Shane's got a very good point where he says that the English league, for as much as we talk about it and say how good it is, it's, it's not that good. It, the, you look at the standard of the games there, and um, a lot of it is just very, very dull rugby, it has to be said. It's not, not played with, with pace or with vision. You could argue that it's about relegation, but if you have a league, you have to have relegation. They have relegation in, in the Premiership in soccer. They have relegation in the top 14 in France. So, uh, you know, we can't say that the top 14 in France is a very good example and then say the Premiership, because they have relegation, are playing badly. I think that there is an, obviously an element of the fact that everything is still up in the air as far as England's concerned, that the players don't know what's going on with Heineken and... They want to go out there and they want to perform. They've got to do that anyway, week in, week out, because the fans. I mean, the fans are spending a lot of money to go and support their clubs. And if they don't perform on the field, then it's going to come back on the revenue and on the gates. People will say it's not worth going to these games. I think that if you look at the results last week, it was only Northampton that really got hammered. Harley Quinn's played well. And you've got to hold your head up and say Leinster really put in a performance on that day. And um, Jim Mallander, the coach of Northampton, has said that he's embarrassed by the way that his team performed. Jeff, what do the fans actually... You mentioned the fans there. What do they actually want in terms of European rugby? I don't think they know, really. I, I think, like everything else, all they want is they want to have good competition and good rugby uh, week in and week out to go and watch. And uh, the Heineken has provided that over the number of years. But... There is no doubt there needs to be change in the Heineken, but whether you need to tear it up and throw it away, that's that's another question. And really, we're not talking about tearing up and throwing away the Heineken. If we if you went into the rugby championship, it would have still been the same teams. It still would have been the same level of competition. It's it's more an argument about control. Who controls the competitions? And the Premiership want to control Europe. That's as simple as that. The RFU have finally shown a bit of leadership on this. I think Jeff, they seem to their motivation seems to be that their players need to be in a pan-European competition ahead of a home World Cup. Just playing Premiership rugby isn't really going to have them fully primed. But 
you talk about control there do, 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 and power. Does the or if you have enough control, have enough power to have any say in this matter? Well, I think what's interesting about the RFU statement is that they haven't come out and supported either side. Um, they've, uh, they've not said whether they want the clubs to take control or whether they want to carry on with a union-led competition. What's happened? They've just come out and said that a result must be found. Uh, we must find some, some form of compromise somewhere. Uh, and there must be a pan-European competition. Well, I don't think there's any argument that, that we, we all want a pan-European competition. The question is who controls it. And the RFU haven't put their heads above the parapet and said it should be union-led or it should be club-led. So it's it's just so much hot air, really, what they've said. They need to actually come out and either support the unions or support their clubs, and they're not doing either. Jeff, great to talk to you. Thank you. No problem. Yeah, and just to, to address a couple of the issues that uh, Jeff uh, made there. One, I actually think that uh, the French league aren't a good indicator uh, to, um, you know, to, to, to what it's doing right. I think that actually the French league isn't as strong as it should be. Uh, the way they play the game there is now is, is not in the, in the French tradition, and they're just looking to to bulldoze teams. And, and when that doesn't work, they don't uh, they don't have the traditional flair that we, we we've seen in, with French teams in the past. And and we saw that certainly manifest. Um, Against uh, in the in the Toulouse uh, Connacht game uh, at the weekend, where when when Toulouse couldn't batter Connacht into submission, they they didn't actually have the quality to move the ball uh, wide as well as they should have, and and so I don't think that that their competition is working either. And I think that you can move away from a, a relegation and promotion uh, model in England as well, where you know you look to the American model where you have you have the amount of teams that you have, and you know maybe you. You identify every you know five or ten years whether a new franchise, as it were, should come into the league because one is failing and or one is really pushing away. But I think as long as you have this absolute dogfight to try and uh, stay in the league in England, uh, I think you're going to have issues with um, the quality of of the rugby that uh, you see week in week out. Yeah, and an even starker example in Toulouse is if you look at what's happening in racing metro. You know, if you're relying on cash for uh, you know a club or for success. It showed, like the club seems to have no soul there. I mean, it's it was really dis- de- almost depressing looking at Johnny Sexton having to play in that, where there was no desire and there was no heart there. So, if that's the model, if that's the route that the English um, English money men and the French money men are obviously the French have pulled back. You know, that's a pretty stark example of what kind of what kind of identity, what kind of European uh, rugby you know you're going to be looking at that, that kind of landscape. So. You know, hopefully that's going to be you know really reassessed. Let's talk about the Irish provinces. We've been having a debate in the office actually over the last day or so. Well, it wasn't. It, was, it only took about ten or fifteen minutes. I shouldn't overstate how long we spent on it. But just on Connacht's win over Toulouse, Trevor, a couple of us, myself and Kieran here, reckon that this is the kind of victory that you need from time to time just to keep some sort of spirit there. Almost for a province like Connacht to survive, you need to be winning this these heroic victories from time to time. But a couple of others reckon that. It's really of no relevance because they've done this before. They'll probably do it again, but it only happens from time to time and we've learned nothing new about them. It doesn't really do anything for their long-term development. Well, I, I think I'd agree with yourself and Murph there, but we won't really know if it's a watershed. I think not even after this weekend, we'll know after they play the Dragons the following week whether there, there's been a genuine sense of self-belief now instilled in them after that. I think there will be because... There can only be so many times you can come up short with one minute to go and to lose a match that can actually start beginning to break you. Um, but I think Connacht showed such self-belief and such uh, urgency and such desire there in the last three or four minutes in that game to show that it's really, it's really building there what they have and have actually got over the line there. I think it's going to make a massive difference to the to the team. Shane will have played in in games where Leinster won in in France, and it just marked a, a sea change in in the momentum for for the province. And, and Munster had it too, and so did Ulster. Away wins in France seem to be all seem to give teams that momentum. And I think we won't know till after this weekend, and more importantly, probably the the, the Pro Twelve game the following week, whether that belief and that you know that just that uh, sense that they can do it now. You know, is really filling throughout the team. Shane, does a club and do the supporters of a club prefer the odd one-off victory like this against massive opposition? There's been a huge amount of emotion around it, or would they like to see? Do you think steady progression in the league? Um, I don't know. I think that we. Some fans who'd like the big wins, you know, and they, as opposed to just the monotony of, you know, mid-table respectability, and you know, I, I, maybe it's something like uh, if you're. 
related to football and, and, and Wigan. You know, they got relegated last year uh, in the football, but they won the FA Cup. You know, now would the, the f- fans would rather they played another year in the Premiership or, or would they take the, the trophy? You know, so um, those big off wins are very important to maybe teams who aren't going to win the league. But I think, you know, there's a bigger issue than that. And you mentioned that Connacht have been in this position before. They haven't quite been in this position before because this is that was a truly remarkable win at the weekend. Um, the way it was done, the way they performed, the way they went after, I thought it was it was very special. But if you look at their performances this year, they have been really, really poor. So there's got to be a lot of questions asked uh, around the players, you know, and they're asking themselves, uh, why is there the level of inconsistency that has been there this year? How can you play so well against such a good team and to lose? and play so inconsistently for the rest of the season and and that's something that they'll have to address and if they don't you know there's real questions around the the players and and their mental you know fortitude really Um, what was interesting for me at the weekend the Connacht game was not how well they played but actually the mistakes that they made and how much further they can move the game on now in defence they missed a huge amount of tackles in the first half their line speed though was very very good you know they really pressurised to lose but their, their line speed was their, their, they missed far too many tackles in that first half so there's something straight away that you can improve on uh, Dan Parks had a really poor game in general um, and also the, some of their accuracy uh, when they tried to move the ball wide wasn't quite as good as it should be so all that said, they still won that game. So, from my point of view, if you were uh, if you were a coach and you're analysing um, the game and you, you look at all the mistakes that were made and you say we still perform like this and we still beat Toulouse away, you know where can we go? And I think that's where they have to be looking at it. They can't be just saying, yeah, that was a really good performance against Toulouse. What they say is, look at the mistakes you made. Made we can rectify them. Some of them quite easily. And how good of a team could we be week in, week out if we address those? Because some of their back play at the weekend was exceptional. Yep, that's on 6 o'clock on Saturday. Same time as Leinster against Northampton. Trevor, we've been looking for signs of what, and we've discussed this on the show in a number of weeks, of what exactly Matt O'Connor is bringing to the table. Will he do anything differently? Will will he, certainly in the Heineken Cup, we haven't really seen him as an attacking force up until last weekend. Is that more like what, what Matt O'Connor's Leinster are going to be all about? I'd say so, yeah. He's, ideally, I yeah, guess. Yeah, ideally. And I think he's just building on what was there previously. And it's just a really direct, really rootless clinical kind of style. You see, everyone seems to be offering themselves as a threat. They're really running hard lines. They're playing really flat. I think the fact that he picked Madigan there as well was really significant. Nothing against Jimmy Goppert, but the way Madigan w- was playing flat, he was really setting everyone up to look so j- dangerous. And I think maybe initially we were seeing with, with Matt a kind of a, a defensive emphasis and a really good line speed and, and uh, coming up hard. But now we're seeing what he wants in, in attack and, and by I don't know if I'm jinxing it. If he might go with Goppert this weekend, I doubt it though, because that really set out the template for how Leinster are going to play. And some and a player that I think really sums it up is the likes of Sean Crone, who's got a new lease of life under Matt, and he seems to be offering himself in so many different areas of the field, especially in the in the in the twelve and thirteen channel. But he his lines are running, and the lines of most of most of front front five even pack are are creating that space a little bit wider and. Redden as well, especially, is, is offering a high temp, a really high tempo game with so many threats that Leinster, no matter if, even if Northampton get their mind mindset right this weekend, I think Leinster are just looking so clinical and so ruthless. Shane, I know I probably bang on about mindset and that kind of angle to it a little bit too often, but is is there a danger here that Northampton are going to be the ones with something to prove? They've got their professional reputations on the line in a way. Yeah, we think they had a bit of proof last week and, and they didn't prove it, you know. Um, they were really blown out of the water in every department. Uh, yeah, they, I think they will come. They can't be as bad as they were last weekend. It would be surprising if Leinster were quite that good because it was really remarkable performance from them. Um, work rate, uh, as, as Trev said, the, the high tempo of the game, the animation for every single option um, on every move, whether it be our first phase or second phase, um, that there was animation from everyone, which there was a number of people who could get the ball. And that was the sort of threat that Northampton couldn't, uh, couldn't deal with. Now, you'd expect Northampton to play a bit better. I think they have a couple of players coming back in. But I think a defeat... Um, of the nature of the one that they, they suffered last week. That's the kind of defeat that can actually leave a scar on the team. Um, that said, they were beaten badly last year in, in the opening game of this uh, the, two, the, the two series of games in, in the Highland Cup week, uh, 
weekends against Ulster and they looked, you know, they weren't beaten as badly, but they didn't look great and they came back and they had a phenomenal performance the following week. Um, I can see them performing better and Leinster are not quite as good, but Leinster are doing enough to win. Conor Murray picked up an injury last week, but uh, which is the bad news, but he has signed a new contract, which is the very good news, Shane, for Munster. And Paul O'Connell's been talking this week about looking to play for another couple of years as well. Are those the kind of little, just little things that can help build momentum going into a big game away to Perpignan? You know, I don't think that has a direct uh, um, influence on the on the game this week. But you know, for the for the organisation, it does have uh, has an influence. It, it makes the, the uh, recruitment a lot easier. You know, if you're going out looking for for, for new players, you're saying, well, listen, Connor Murray signed up here. It, it allow, and you know, Paul um, O'Connell is is committing to his long term future here, um, and also. The players, the young players coming through, holding them, saying, "Yeah, I want to be part of this. We're building something here." So, from that, from from an organisation's point of view, I think it's really important. I think Paul O'Connell has been really smart in what he's done, and I think actually um, it's something that Brian O'Driscoll should have done at the time. He has pushed the question of retirement, you know, way into the long grass. And when whether he re- decides to play on for that long or whether he retires next year, <laughs> you know, he's not going to have to answer those questions every week. You know, Brian was in a situation last year where it was constantly being asked and I'm sure he didn't want to have to you know maybe set out the stall and say I'm finishing up at this at the end of this year but he was almost forced into that position where Paul has been smart now where he's as you said he's kicked the ball into the long grass they're not going to be asking those questions um, every um, every week they're not going to be like clapping them off wondering if it's going to be the last time they've seen him so really I think it was a very clever play by by Paul and it now allows him to retire on his own terms. Trevor, this is a key game for Munster away to Perpignan. We always knew this would be the tougher of the the two fixtures, obviously. But what do you think their chances are? I think they're good. I think uh, you know you have, you have question marks because uh, Perpignan have lost Charteris, but uh, you know they seem Perpignan seem to have been blaming the ref a lot for the weekend, and it's a little bit like. Northampton, they don't seem to be looking at themselves. Well, I think Northampton are looking at themselves, but the Perpignan, uh, they need to address their own lack of intensity and lack of aggression that they had that day, and lack of even ho- basic homework. They hadn't seemed to recognise Munster's Munster's uh, style of play, so they have a lot of questions to answer. And it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see whether they can they can produce some sort of performance. I think there's no doubt Munster will have the the intensity that's needed. We haven't really talked much about Ulster in recent weeks, largely because they're in the home and away games against. Treviso at the moment so you'd be expecting them to make it four wins from four it's too early they were flying along at this stage last year and the wheels came off a little bit but do they look a little bit better set this season? They do the depth they have is, is amazing I, like they've lost an entire back row there at the moment they're missing Nick Williams Henderson and Chris Henry and they've managed to replace with three really really strong explosive players Roger Wilson uh, Dyack, and now this new guy Sean Doyle and they all look really strong and really they're a little bit like Leinster there at the weekend. They, all the animation Shane's talking about, they all look really strong on the ball, down to who he's uh, playing out of his skin at the moment. Um, you know, they, they have a depth there now that they maybe didn't have last year. They're after losing Rory Best, but they have replaced him now with, with Rob Herring, who had a brilliant game there at the weekend. Uh, so they have a huge depth. Treviso, like that was a serious result to get that many points against them. Whether they can do that again away... You know that 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 still it might be under the radar, but that will send out a real strong message because Treviso are no are no joke. All right, predictions. I think you were three from four last week, Shane, but I don't know anybody in Ireland who predicted Connacht were going to win. What do you think this week? Um, yeah, I think I might go the same again. Actually, um, I think Munster will have a much more difficult job with their hands. The French rugby is really polarised around their home and the way performances. Um, the amount of uh, away v- victories is very, very small, right throughout that league. Um, but they all do concentrate on their home. And I know Perpignan, um, you know, they 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 haven't performed well so well so far, and they're not one of the stronger French teams. But they'll give Munster a much better game um, this weekend. I I think that one is going to be very, very tight, and, and Munster will do very well to come out of that with a uh, with a win. I think Leinster will win again. I think they'll win uh, reasonably comfortably, um, not probably as comfortably as last week. Um, Northampton to play a little better, Leinster to play a little less mm. well, and uh, Connacht. Uh, you know, I really enjoyed watching the game at the weekend, um, but to lose, and they played exceptionally well. To lose were, you know, pretty abysmal in the way they um, set themselves up for that game. They were really, they didn't respect. Um, Connacht they didn't uh, respect uh, the competition actually in the way they, they played and I think um, Guinovay has come out this week and said that um, 
they didn't they didn't really set themselves up to play for Connacht. I think they'll play a lot better this week. I think they'll try and grind Connacht down and they won't move the they won't move the ball at all. Um and as a result I think they might just nick uh, Connacht and uh, Toulouse and sorry, Ulster will uh, win very well. All right. So just to clarify on Munster, you think they the Perpignan will win that ultimately? No, I oh, think you're not sure. You said Munster will be doing well think, to win. Sorry, Munster will just nip it. But right, okay. I think it's going to be a really. It's going to be maybe a one-score game. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I, I, I'll go with a clean sweep again this weekend. I think Connacht will do it. Right. I think yeah, just that belief they have there now being built and. Uh, Toulouse still I know what Shane's saying but I hear Guy Novez talking about all the reason they didn't play is because they were missing so many guys for the the November window um you know, I just even if what what Toulouse will learn, they'll probably look to kick a little bit more because they try to take Connacht on. You know that blitz defence, but it's, that could work in Connacht's favour. And Connacht have the belief now, and they have that high tempo game as well. You know, I, I believe in Connacht, and uh, I think they're starting to believe in themselves as well. So I'm going for the for the clean sweep. We're loving the bullish talk, Trevor. Thanks very much, Shane. Brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Thanks. that's no worries. Shane Curran with the kick out. The 42 year old goalkeeper. Curling out from goal. Here he comes. He topped it. He's 40. He's 50 yards out from goal. What a day for us coming. All the mother niggas lame and you know it now. When the real nigga hold you down, you're supposed to drown. Bam. 1944 is the last time I've seen your tiger come out of here. And the one, 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 be the last one. Bam. What a day for us coming. Leave a pretty girl. I just feel great now. This is incredible. Trevor's left us with this. That's bullish, all right. That is bullish. I'll give him that. Four more wins. That's 12 in a row for Irish provinces. And I mean, it's not just that it's 12 in a row. We're also talking about Connacht beating Toulouse back to back. And And Munster going going away to Perpignan, Perpignan. the hotbed. I mean, I mean, listen, I admire the confidence there. And. You know, taking individually, Munster would look at Perpignan last week and say, right, they're going to be different at home, but they were still bloody horrendously bad uh, away. So we'll take those. And then, you know, you are, you know, Connacht would have definitely been looking at the Toulouse home game as opposed to the Toulouse away game as a possible game that they could win. But yeah, 12 in a row would be quite something. Coming up in second captain's football. That's. Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I'm, walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. Well, you don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to okay. now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you surely man? <laughs> well, we talked about sports books on uh, Tuesday. Yeah. We're going to talk about another couple of books later on. But these aren't simply books. I mean, the great thing about talking about books and to their authors is that uh, you're talking to people who have such a wealth of information about the subject. Mm. You can have a really fascinating discussion, taking the book as a starting point, but moving on to explore themes which, you know, everybody, even people who haven't read the book yet, can connect with. And that's what we seek to do on Second Captain's Football. So we're going to talk to Guillaume Balaguet, uh, who's got a new book out about Lionel Messi. It's called Messi. And uh, we're going to talk... Straightforward title. And we're also going to talk to uh, Daniel Harris, uh, who's got a new book out, which is called The Promised Land. You have it in your hand right there, Ken. It's right here in front of me. Manchester United's historic treble. Um, and the interesting thing about that is, is that what's happening at the moment with Man United is the, like this myth-making frenzy of, uh, you know, it's like all the history is sort of coming out now in the, in, in, in the last few weeks. Class of 92, that sort of thing. Class of 92, which, which Daniel also worked on. Um, the Keen Vieira thing the other night, Ferguson's book, obviously, this kind of, uh, and obviously Daniel's book itself. So um, a lot of a lot of talk, on about old school Manchester United. And uh, we're going to talk to Daniel about some of that, especially why, you know, that, that, the kind of thing that emerged from that documentary the other night. We can, we can kind of understand why Roy Keane doesn't like Alex Ferguson anymore. But Giggs, Neville and Skulls, really? Poor old Giggs had a terrible time from Roy Keane on... I think Tuesday night. I think it's called collateral. Damage. I was watching. I was watching the prelude to the Man United match, and he spent maybe ten, fifteen seconds. It was, it was quite, in fairness, it was quite accurate, and it was a fair point that he was making. But he was saying, you know, "You're relying on a forty-year-old. A forty-year-old should never have so much influence in a team. It should, there should just be younger players, better players, have been brought through, so that this guy's getting edged out." And after a bit, of, you know, a little while of this, he said, 
all credit to Giggsy, of course. And I was thinking, really all credit to Giggsy? I all know, credit. I know that in a couple of hours' time I'm going to watch you leave him out and call him not a great player <laughs> and leave him out of your all-time ultimate fantasy Man United team. Uh, uh, he did have a great career, though. All credit to him for all, that. All credit to Giggsy. We will talk a bit more about that in Second Captain's Football. Let's head over to San Francisco right now. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. He's out on his feet. Frank Capitino's going to let him keep it. It's good. Yeah, it's time to welcome the star of Sunday evenings, NFL coverage on Sky Sports, Brian Murphy. Hi, Brian. That's my claim to fame now, huh? I'm blowing up over on Sky. Well, that's you guys are going to have to uh, renegotiate my contract now that I'm uh, doing my thing. But yeah, it's funny. I heard from you guys that there must have been some show filler needed because uh, was it one of those NFL Network Top Ten shows? What was it? No, it was Candlestick Park Memories. I don't know how they got the idea, Brian. I'm not trying to say that there's an issue between us and Sky, but <laughs> you, you, you came on right after Steve Sable of NFL Films talking about a couple of your memories of one particular touchdown that was scored. My goodness, I don't, you know, I'm such a, uh, I talk so much, I never <laughs> shut up. I don't even remember doing that interview, so there you go. All right. But you guys are my first priority always, come on. Brian. Good to hear. What a day to live in California on Sunday. Nice, mild, sunny day. You could watch San Francisco, have a big victory, and be safe, nice and warm, in your t-shirt probably, while you're watching the rest of the country fight it out in a blizzard. Oh, my God, what a day. Some are calling it the greatest NFL Sunday ever because of the uh, not just the weather but the crazy finishes everywhere. I don't know if it was the greatest NFL Sunday ever. It certainly was a memorable day, that's for sure, just because it touched on one of those one of those mystical – you know, I always uh, – go on and on to you guys about the poetry of baseball and the history of baseball and all that. Well, the one thing football has that's always been its ace in the hole is the snow in December and how how aesthetic, what an aesthetic it is and what an effect it has on the games and how much it reminds everybody of being a kid and, and just how um, sort of, I don't know, sort of um, chaotic is not the right word, just sort of... Um, no holds barred, Mother Nature and football meeting in a glorious white tableau. And uh, that's something we don't get out here in California, guys. As you know, there's many, 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 many benefits to living in California, particularly in Northern California in the beautiful San Francisco Bay Area. But we don't get that. And it's funny, I married, my wife is from Alaska, and she'll say that, you know, I love everything about living here, but I miss the snow. And people who grew up in the snow, even though you've got to shovel sometimes cars out of 10-foot snow banks, or you've got to, you know, trains are frozen, and it's hard to get to work, or whatever, it can be hard living it can also create some really, really, really memorable days, especially the day the snow falls. Not, the, not when it turns black and icy days later, but when it's snowing. And that's what happened all over the NFL and the East Coast on Sunday, most memorably in Philadelphia where the Eagles and Lions played a game where, guys, it looked like sometimes in the end zone where the snow kind of fell unimpeded because when they were playing in the middle of the field, at least the snow was getting kicked around. I think there was a touchdown score in the end zone. I swear I saw the snow up to almost shin level shin level snow so it was incredible it's funny how they, they you, you keep on playing you know in baseball you stop when it rains there's no playing outside in baseball basketball of course is an indoor sport hockey of course indoor golf will stop anytime there's standing water on the greens but not football, baby. The only time they'll ever stop a game is for lightning, and that's kind of just for uh, public safety. But they played on. Pittsburgh was also covered in snow, too. So it was very, very, very memorable. And we in California, we thought we had it cold, guys. We were at, at kickoff at Candlestick Sunday. It was 43 Fahrenheit. 43 Fahrenheit, which is very cold for San Francisco. Usually our winters are about Poor 55. Oh, yeah, man. yeah. So, so that was the day, guys. It was really, really... And for us, and for kids, if you're at home and you're, you have a Christmas tree up and you have a game like the Eagles and Lions, a snow on the TV, that is, honest to goodness, some of the most fun viewing because it's just such an, a dramatic, natural scene. Yeah, and, and people call it, it's real football. Um, and does that date back to, 
uh, where American football was first played. So it was first played, you know, in the northeast of the country uh, and in places like Green Bay, in Detroit, Chicago Bears, these kinds of teams. They were the original NFL teams. And as a result, there's kind of a, there's a traditionalist, as you're talking about their uh, approach to snow games, that you know, it, it's real football being played by real teams like the Philadelphia and Detroit Lions and these, these sorts of teams. That's exactly right, Kira. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's geography only, and that is that the, the teams that started, your Chicago Cardinals, your Green Bay Packers, your Chicago Bears, those were the teams that started the leagues, and they were teams in Canton, the Canton Bulldogs, and things like that, and the Philadelphia Eagles, as you mentioned, and yeah, and they played outdoors. So there's two things at work here. One, the geography of the early NFL was played in cold-weather towns where, starting around Thanksgiving, snow is on the table. I mean, you don't always get the snow. I mean, you know, those towns aren't, it doesn't snow, you know, for two months at a time over there. It, it's, kind of a, it's kind of like a lucky draw that it happens to snow on that Sunday. But you'd get it much more. And then look at expansion. Look at where the teams are now scattered around the country. Miami, Florida, you ain't going to get that. Jacksonville, Florida, you're not going to get that. Atlanta, Georgia, you're not going to get that. San Francisco, California, you're not going to get that. San Diego, California, Oakland, California, you're not going to get that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a function of the early days of football being played strictly in cold-weather cities where from November on you had a very good chance of not just snow but also those games where you, there's something to, to the aesthetic of, the, of the, when your breath condenses in cold weather. That's always kind of one of those looks and, and um, uh, sort of football scenes that we romanticize, like, oh, you can see their breath coming out of their helmets. So, you know, the football uniform itself is such an – such a unique look, you know, with its helmet and its colors and its logo. It's part of the appeal of the game. I remember as a kid, I just loved the Minnesota Vikings helmet because it was purple and it had that white horn on it. And they played outdoors, and you could see their breath, their condensed breath coming out of their helmet. It just looked cool. It was different, you know. I mean, for kids who live on the West Coast or anywhere, it just looked like it was a fun thing to battle the elements and go out and feel alive like that. And I think that's the appeal. The other part of the reason why it's considered real football is that the, the advent of the Dome killed that off. And even like the Detroit Lions now, who were formerly a cold-weather town, they play in a climate controlled area. The Minnesota Vikings, who I just mentioned, were so famous for their snow games in December, because that is maybe the snowiest, I don't know if it is statistically the snowiest state in the Union, but it's certainly top five in the Union, Minnesota. And they played outdoors, guys, up until about 1980, what, 83, something like that is when they built that dome. So when I was a kid, and the Vikings were very, very good in the 70s, too, with Fran Tarkenton and Chuck Foreman and those guys. In fact, they went to a Super Bowl or two in the 70s. And uh, actually went to four and lost them all. But they played outdoors in the huge snowstorms in December. But they're in a dome now. So Minnesota, Detroit, uh, the Indianapolis Colts, these are all dome teams now. So you lose that element of the outdoor snow. That's why everybody, I think, treasured and kind of just really embraced what was going on on Sunday. It was because it was a hearkening back to the early part of the 20th century with the cold-weather cities, and it was the teams that still aren't playing in domes. So that's real football, boys. One of the teams that Brian, uh, that Kieran mentioned there, I think, Brian, was the Green Bay Packers, and they were involved in one of the most famous, not necessarily snowy games of all time, it was the Ice Bowl of 1967. It didn't look quite as spectacular on the ground as some of the matches we saw at the weekend, but the key here was just the temperature and the wind chill factor. And this was a game for the NFC Championship, uh, the, the, essentially the NFL Championship at the time. Yeah, you're right. It's called the Ice Bowl, and it is one of the most famous games in the history of the NFL for many reasons, but I would say number one reason was the weather at Lambeau Field. And you're right, it was weird because it was a bright blue, a sunshiny day. It was a blue sky and a blazing sun, but guys, 15 below Fahrenheit, if you're going to go Celsius, Irish temperature, 26 below, minus 26 Celsius, okay? And they're going to play football in that, and so that was... So incredible because, you know, what can the human body do in weather like that? That actually, that game affected people just, you know, the blood systems and your ability, your muscles to react. I mean, it's hard for a human being to to walk in that weather and, and breathe, much less play football, much less play the NFL championship game, guys. That was the Dallas Cowboys and Green Bay Packers playing for the championship of the NFL on December 31st. 1967. So, I mean, that was, you know, it wasn't just that it was that, that incredible park, Lambeau Field, which is so historic, 
or the, the fact that it was 15 below, it was for the NFL championship. The winner would go on to the Super Bowl, which is in, the very first Super Bowl, uh, which is incredible. And, of course, then it became it was a very close game, too. The Cowboys had a 17-14 to 14 lead late. It's amazing that they were able to score any points in those games, even kick field goals with how hard that football was. And then famously, Bart Starr, the legendary Green Bay quarterback, the Hall of Famer, snuck in from the one-yard line on a quarterback sneak. A block was thrown by a guard named Jerry Kramer. And the instant replay, that was famous. I told you it was famous for a number of reasons. The weather, the epicness of the game, um, the fact that these guys had to play in that temperature, but also because instant replay was new to football then. And, of course, you think about life without instant replay now, you're like, oh, my God, you mean people had to watch a sporting event and then not rewatch it two seconds later? How could you do that, right? Well, Jerry Kramer, the guard of the Green Bay Packers, threw the key block that sprung Bart Starr for the touchdown, and it made Jerry Kramer famous. And he wound up actually becoming a celebrity because of that, because the instant replay showed his block clearing the way for Bart Starr, the kind of thing that when you watch with the naked eye, it's hard to see. In fact, Jerry Cameron wrote a book about his life called Instant Replay. So any number of reasons why that game was so famous. And guys, the link to it all is the Super Bowl this year is being played in New York City, or more specifically in New Jersey, right outside of New York City, in an outdoor stadium in a cold-weather climate for the first time ever. This is Super Bowl 48, and the previous 47 have either been played in warm-weather cities like New Orleans, Miami, uh, or Pasadena, or San Diego. And, and when they have played it uh, in the northern climes, in Indianapolis and in Detroit, they've played it in climate-controlled domes. But they are going outdoors in New York in early February, and it's been a talking point kind of for the, the previous months leading up to this, kind of like, but now that we're getting real close, now that we're only a few weeks away from the Super Bowl, February 2, I believe, is the Super Bowl date, what happened on Sunday in the NFL, and kind of brings back memories of the Ice Bowl, is that we are going to be, be, play, be playing the first ever cold-weather Super Bowl, and people were saying, man, if it turns out like that <laughs> Philly game on Sunday, oh my God, people are going to lose their minds. Seems unfair, Brian, that a stadium, venerable old stadium like Lambeau Field, would never have gotten a Super Bowl at any stage, but I don't know, maybe it's, a, it's the, the area of the country, the size of the city, and these kind of things have to be taken into account. But just to go back to that ice ball in 1967, we've been watching some of the highlights of it today. There, there's about a 10 or 12 minute clip on YouTube of NFL films, complete with the dramatic narrative, uh, uh, narration, I should say, and over-the-top music. But it's uh, again, the footage is absolutely astonishing. Seven members of the marching band, forget about the players for a second, seven members of the band were hospitalized with hypothermia. Not only that, when they tried to play their instruments, apparently their lips got stuck to the instruments and when they tried to then unstick themselves they parts of their lips were ripping off blood everywhere and then the blood was freezing in the air Brian this is a complete bloodbath a frozen bloodbath at that it's inhuman. It's a. It's like it's like something from an alien world. Oh my God! Lips ripping off a of trumpet. <laughs> lips freezing the clarinets. You know what's incredible about that is that there was a marching band. I mean, my God! Nowadays it's like who are you booking Beyonce or are you booking Miley Cyrus for the Super Bowl? But that shows you how quaint a early football was in the '60s. And B, Green Bay, Wisconsin is. Green Bay is such a nerdy, um, nerdy is not the right word, such a homey Midwestern town with such different values than L.A. and New York where they don't need to, hey, come on, you know, let's get uh, Justin Timberlake ripping off Janet Jackson's clothes at a Super Bowl. That's happened a few years ago. No, no, no. Let's bring out the old local marching band and have their lips freeze to their instruments, which, guys, of course, it's that time of year we're here in America the new tradition is to watch A Christmas Story. I hope you guys are carrying that on over in Ireland. The great story of uh, the young kid Ralphie's quest to get a BB gun. And that leads to that great scene at his elementary school when he dares, they, they dare that kid Flick to lick the light, to lick the, uh, the pole that's frozen and his tongue gets stuck to it and he can't come into class. You've lost his pride. Of, no, we, we don't know what you're talking We're looking at each other here with blank, blank Where's the beef? In. I'm just I'm where, looking where, at all the beef on this. Just asking you where's the beef? Wait a minute. I got to call a timeout. Are you ki- uh, the yeah. movie A Christmas Story has not reached epic status in Ireland? Well, no. not in this particular small studio. Oh my goodness. No, okay, we're, let me we're let barometers my gift, of, of pop my culture. Gift, we know. My gift to you guys is the movie A Christmas Story. It's a very it's a very um it was made in I think 1982 or 83 and it's narrated a, an, an adult looking back on his youth. It's a very light-hearted, um, kind of warm-hearted narration of a, a youth Christmas in Indiana in the 1940s in which his only quest was to get a BB gun, and the whole movie is built around that. 
and it's it's turned into a classic in America over the last ten years. TNT, one of the networks, starts airing it on Christmas Eve and plays it for 24 hours straight on a loop. It's coming up on and about to pass It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart as the all-time Christmas Eve, Christmas Day movie in America. But the point of the story is it relates back to your uh, Green Bay Packers marching band because one of the key plot turns is one of the kids gets his tongue stuck to a frozen pole. These are things we don't worry about in California, guys. These are the things that in happens in Dumb and Dumber as well, Brian. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, there you was, go. Now, now we're talking Daniels your language. Jim now Curry, we're talking sure your language. But anyway, yeah. So, guys, this is what's going to happen at the Super Bowl. And I think Bruno Mars is booked to play the Super Bowl this halftime. I, I'm not a Bruno Mars hater, but you could have probably done better than Bruno Mars. But he's going to bring – I picture this little guy out there. He's a little guy out there in a big parka, a big fur-lined parka, because it could be crazy, guys. Now, it's, again, luck of the draw. It could be a mild day. They could get, you know, 45 degrees Fahrenheit and sun – but we could have what we saw in Philadelphia, Detroit, which, by the way, last note on that, did you know not a single point after kick was attempted in that game because it was almost impossible to try to kick a ball, so they, they went for two-point conversions that both teams did the whole game. I think I read that it was the first NFL game with no point after attempt tried at any point in the game. So that's what the snow can do to you. Yeah, and the first... NFL game with no uh, no scores by foot since about since the fifties or sixties or something. I was listening um, to some of these stats today, Brian. But just on the f- that nineteen sixty seven game, for example, it strikes me as quite an achievement. The Dallas Cowboys went home with the reputation as chokers, having failed to beat Green Bay again, who were the dominant team at that time. But for a bunch of guys used to playing in the much warmer climate of Dallas to uh, in Texas to have to go to Green Bloody Bay and play in minus 15 degrees Fahrenheit and beat the locals. Oh, I'm sure they're not all from Green Bay, but they're certainly used to playing in those kind of conditions. Yeah. And they got to within 16 seconds that's, of it. That, that's an incredible... One of the Dallas Cowboys players was running around while play was on. He was a wide receiver. He's literally r- trying to run to catch the ball with his hands down his pants to keep warm. <laughs> yeah, and uh, they wound up being... No, you're right. Great credit to them for playing that well. Legendary players on that team, legendary coach Tom Landry. He's one of those guys who wound up becoming, of course, one of the most iconic coaches in the history of the NFL. And it just goes to show you how good he was to have his team that ready. Don Meredith was their quarterback. He became uh, a bit of a celebrity later on as a Monday night football announcer. But those guys were players for sure. And, uh, but Green Bay got him, and you're right. It's, uh, it was an incredible achievement. And that is something you have to consider when you th- look at these ice bowl type games is – what, what climate is the team coming from that's playing in it? So for Dallas to do that well that day was amazing. And by the way, I'm glad you guys saw the YouTube version, too, with the John Facenda narration. That's the name you guys need mm-hmm. to know. That voice you heard, I'm presuming it's the one you heard. If you heard a guy that basically sounds like the voice of God yeah, that's narrating, <laughs> yeah, his name is John Facenda, and he, guys... Is, is credited, you know, we've talked about, I think, a little bit about NFL films and their role in the, in the popularity of the NFL. I mean, some would just call it straight propaganda, yeah. the way they ran that kind of that military music and that slow motion uh, stuff and the deep narration. It was incredibly effective filmmaking by the Sable family, Steve Sable and NFL Films. But that guy, John Facenda, that narration is part of the lore of, like, when you talk about what gives people goosebumps in American football, it's that guy narrating the ice bowl. So, yeah, and by the way, it hasn't changed in Green Bay. They're still playing at Lambeau Field, and they still play outdoor playoff games. And when I covered the 49ers as a writer in 1998, we went there, and it was 32 degrees Fahrenheit and pouring rain, and it never quite snowed. It was like sleet all day. And a guy I talked to from Green Bay later that night at a restaurant said he was old enough. He had been booth to the 1967 Ice Bowl and the 1998 game. He said the 98 game was worse than the Ice Bowl because it was wet. And because at least at the Ice Bowl, however freezing you were, it was dry. But this was a 32 degrees Fahrenheit sleet all game. And so it was, you were soaking all game. And the, by the way, that was the game, uh, pardon me, 97. That was the game where the 49ers lost. Steve Young had broken ribs. And George Seifert got fired after that game. And the 49ers kind of started their spiral down. They hired Steve Mariucci and then Dennis Erickson and then Mike Nolan and Mike Singletary. And all the way until they come coming out of the darkness now with Jim Harbaugh as their coach. But yeah, so in other words, it, you still can get that ice bowl stuff at Lambeau Field if the Packers make the playoffs this year, which they're only a game out of making it, even with Aaron Rodgers hurt. Brian, one last very quick question, and that's related to any potential health and safety concerns around these amazing, spectacular-looking games. What does it actually take for an NFL game to get called off? Lightning is the only one. Lightning is the only time I've seen NFL games 
get called uh, unless there's there's been blackouts, of course. You know, we had that at Candlestick where the actual lights went out. But the only time I've seen them stop a game is for lightning. And, in fact, they even played once through fog that was so incredible in an NFC playoff game in Chicago where the TV cameras couldn't see the field, but they kept playing, which was incredible. So that's, really, that's pretty much it, guys. I think it's lightning. And other than that, I, there might have been a monsoon in Florida recently. So I stand corrected. If any of your listeners out there are shouting at – their uh, podcast right now. Uh, it's not coming to my head right now, but I think there might have been a monsoon in Florida, either Jacksonville or Miami, that they had to delay the game for a little bit, like an hour or something like that. I think that happened maybe even this year, guys. My memory's fading a little bit. But as far as canceling the game, it's almost never. You, your football, it's man's game. It's uh, when, the men were made, when the men were made of iron and the ships were made of wood, guys. Brian, I'm sure we'll see you hosting on Sky Sports this Sunday night. Thanks very much for talking as always. All the best, guys. I absolutely adore Brian's description of that narrator, John Facenda. He sounds like God. Mm. Well, to be honest, right, <laughs> there are times in Crow Park when it's maybe not entirely full. Say there's about maybe 30,000 or 40,000 people. Half full. Half full, right? Uh, at you know, maybe early stages of the Leinster Championship. And the announcer, the PA announcer says, right, uh, substitution for leash, number 15, you know, whoever they read out, MJ Tierney or someone like that. And it literally feels to me like if, if that was me being told by this huge <laughs> booming voice in this half-empty stadium... It would it would be a little bit like saying, "God, it's God here." I don't think you're doing the job today. I'm take, I'm whipping you off. Just this, the stadium is speaking to you, almost. Yeah, exactly. Listen, we've all we've we've had a meeting there while you were taking that free, and we've decided that you're just. <laughs> Why not are you picking an MJ here? No, here? no I'm incredible. just saying he was just least corner forward that popped into my head. I mean, yeah. it's, it's it could be any county. You know, no, but Darren you're, just, you're picking on this one guy. I'm just going to start naming other players from other <laughs> teams now just to lessen the, the damage. Well, let's hear what Brian's talking about. Let's play a little bit. It's only fair that we share a bit of these this NFL pro- films program and share some of this man's voice. This is John Facenda calling the 19, or essentially narrating the story of the Setting 1967 the ice ball. Mm-hmm. That's the one. It is called Russian Winter. The kind of brutal call that made Napoleon and Hitler flee in panic from the doorstep of Moscow. But in Green Bay, it is called Packer Weather. Here, men conquer and laugh at the elements. <laughs> it's called Russian winter, did he say? Yeah. Why is it called Russian? <laughs> it was the mid-1960s. I mean, he I actually know. had to have a voice like that, though, to work in American broadcasting up until possibly even the early 1990s. Yeah. It would still not a bad that? voice to have now, I would say. Why do they always have that voice? What was the, so... What do you mean that voice? That sort of particular... You, it's the same voice that you hear on... Um, that you used to hear on movie trailers. Yeah. You know, supplying the links between the various... I urge anyone out there who hasn't seen the trailer for a documentary about Jerry Seinfeld, he got the guy to read out... Uh, he, he, he basically it's it's a basically skit on that guy who used to do the trailers yeah. who just keeps trying to read out something really bombastic rather than just saying this is a documentary about Jerry Seinfeld yeah. he basically just says in a time <laughs> in a land before time well that's hilarious because there was a movie Very I saw a few months ago I think it only came out this year called Inner World and that yeah. is about you know, voiceover artists and that whole yeah, very, that whole very niche genre that we're talking about here American voiceover yeah, artists they're, they're about Seven ways to. I'm do just a annoyed. Voice. There was another okay. clip where John Facenda talks. What's the Saint Bernard reference he makes? Oh, yeah, he says, uh, "In the sort of weather that would make a Saint Bernard whimper." Yeah, Saint Bernard. Yeah. yeah, I can't believe that didn't make it. It's my favorite dog. Yeah, I know. It didn't quite funny. make it in. We'll put that entire clip. There's about a ten or twelve minute package on YouTube. We'll send you on a link to that if you follow us on Twitter. It's actually very funny. At Second Captains. I also the other day, I remember I was talking. We were talking Christmas trees. Yeah, I had mentioned a mystery. It sounded all very mysterious. I was going yeah. to some unnamed GAA club in Harold's Cross, down the side of a little laneway into a, bit a nearly, car park view of some... Nearly co- shady. Yeah. Well, actually, there are names to these places yep. I was in, and I've been alerted to them. Kevin's Hurling Club in Harold's Cross, where I bought my Christmas tree, Murph, and they're selling them out the back of Rosie O'Grady's pub. Oh, that's in good. car park there. Oh, that's, that's nice. So, that's nice. Uh, that's, they were, I thought they were a little snooty with you on Twitter, to be honest. <laughs> I saw that tweet and was like, here, listen, yeah, it's, Ke- it's Kevin's Hurling. You know, that's the name of the place. I mean, it's Ke- yeah. You, you've already given them your business. Mm. You know, they didn't need to get on to you and start giving out to you about not, get, not getting the name of the Yeah, you're program. right, Murph. In fact, don't go there. If you're, go- <laughs> if you're buying Christmas, do not go here, to I bet, you, I, bet you Jude's are, I bet you Jude's are selling Christmas trees there in Temple Oak. Jude's Power. 
Well, maybe we, maybe we should start giving them a plug. Who knows, Ken? Who knows? Uh, would they definitely be selling Christmas trees? Maybe, maybe not. I don't. I don't know. Now I'll just. Is it, an, is, it an, is it a natural thing? Do you, do GA clubs always sell Christmas trees? Is that a thing that you would expect? Listen, I'm backing out of this. Second captain's right. football is coming up Support a little bit later all. on. Next week, though, Murph, you have promised me off air, and I'm going to hold you to this on air, that mm-hmm. you're going to bring us a very special Yuletide... Festive p Yeah, so people, so please get, get in touch, in. email. Yeah, a bit, and you know, it, they don't have to be photographs. Just send me in your life story. I will read them all. And I will pass on your For those who are just listening for the first time, maybe from abroad, what is the PBS? It's, of course, the Pierce Brosnan Emergent Shoutout, where you get in touch. Tell us where you're listening to the show from. How you ended up wherever the hell Write a couple of footy lines. Yeah. and What sort of celebrity? Oh, this is the key thing. Simon just reminded me. Yeah, celebrities. This is it. So... Essentially, a celebrity P. Bezo endorsement is worth a lot more than a funny story. If you're, if you're in, I don't know, if you're in Times Square and Tom Hanks mm. is walking by and you think, I shouldn't bother Tom Hanks. Yeah, that, yeah. that would I'm, annoy him. Do bother Tom Hanks. Very quickly get some sort of P. Bezo signed together and get a photograph with, with Possibly Tom. explain it. To be honest, I'm, I'm not even that bothered about the photographs. I just want, I just want your life stories. So email them into us, Tom please. Hanks, as long as Second Tom Hanks is involved in some way. Secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. You like, you like Tom Hanks, don't you? Castaway, just him in a ball, Ken. And... <laughs> Just that magnetic screen presence. He's almost as magnetic as Roy Keane. Yeah. yeah See, Owen, Owen's a very simple man. You know, Jimmy Stewart, Tom Hanks. He draws a line. You know, the great... Aston Villa fan, Tom Hanks? The simpletons of American cinema, basically. It, it wouldn't, be, you know? wouldn't be so much, you know, angsty types like uh, Christian Bale. No, no. He, he likes his beer cold, his TV loud, <laughs> and his American and his movie star. Schmaltzy. Clean, clean cut and schmaltzy. That's it, yeah. Don't look at me like that, Odd. I mean, it's, I'm thinking. No, all I'm thinking is what Tom Hanks movies I'm going to watch after the show, and I'm thinking I'm going to big, the money paid off. I'm watch going to big the, straight away. Paid. Where the magic began, Ken? Yeah, of course. Jumping that, that that grand piano in the yeah, toy yeah, shop. It's That's hilarious, absolutely incredible. Not exactly a grand piano, but anyway, no, it was on the floor. Piano. Yeah, Bond, thank you. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Alan. thanks, thanks, thanks for listening. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.